You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. We are reading chapter 8 of the book of Acts. Um, You can find it in your Bibles, on the welcome card, or behind me. Acts chapter 8. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralysed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practised sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptised, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptised. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money? You have no part to share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he set out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in the charge of all the treasury of Candake, which means Queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home, was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I? He said, 
unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they travelled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptised? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptised him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared in Azotus and travelled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Uh, thanks, Christina. Uh, there's an outline of my sermon. Most of you probably know the drill that's on the, on the online welcome card, if you will find that helpful. Uh, let's pray and ask for God's help. Uh, Father God, uh, you know that we all are uh, in desperate need of your help. I need your help to uh, proclaim your word faithfully and clearly and sensitively. And uh, we all need your help to have ears that are open, hearts that are soft to your word. Uh, so please be at work, we pray. Amen. Well, uh, in being part of the team that uh, planted Darabin Presbyterian Church uh, nearly nine years ago now, it's not been an uncommon thing for me to be sitting around thinking, who or what grows the church? Now, some of you might hear that question and you might think, well, why would you even want the church to grow? Right? Like 20 years ago, the church was considered a bit traditional, a bit outdated, uh, perhaps even quaint by some people. Or isn't it nice that we have the church still? Well, not, not so much today, right? Today the church is more considered, more often considered to be dangerous or damaging, even toxic for society. And actually, that's not a new thing, right? If you look at Acts chapter 8, that's what the Jewish religious establishment thought of the church. Led by Saul, they wanted to get rid of the church, to stamp it out, because they thought it was dangerous and damaging and really spreading toxic ideas that were going to ruin everything. And we absolutely have to admit that the church has done some horrific things throughout history, don't we? Horrible things have been done in the name of Christ. We shouldn't hide from that. But still, the historical failures of Christians in the church doesn't mean that the benefits of following Christ or his church growing should be completely discounted. Because actually what we see in the scriptures, what we experience in our own lives, is that coming to know Christ and being a part of his church can be a great blessing to individuals, to families, to communities, to cities, to the world. So not altogether a bad thing for the church to grow. But if we want to see the church grow and bring that blessing, then we've got to ask who or what grows the church. And it seems to me we're often drawn to one of two options. On the one hand, we think, well, the church grows because of us. 
I've certainly slipped into this. The church grows because of our strategies and expertise and level of energy and sacrifice and systems and processes. It's all about us. Of course, the problem with that is, on the one hand, if there's any growth in the church, you get incredibly proud and kind of think too much of yourself. And on the other hand, if there's not as much growth in the church as you would like, it's just exhausting and leads you to despair. And the other problem is it's just not biblical. We see in Acts chapter 8 and throughout the Bible that it's God who grows the church. In fact, my summary of Acts chapter 8, you can see it there on the welcome card if that's helpful for you. Uh, But we see here in Acts chapter 8 that the church grows more widely and rapidly as God the Father, the Son and the Spirit make it grow. And in particular in this chapter, they make it grow by empowering faithful gospel witnesses like Philip. That's the summary. The church grows more widely and rapidly as God the Father, the Son and the Spirit make it grow, in particular by empowering faithful gospel witnesses like Philip. So it'd be great if you have your Bible open. We're going to work our way through Acts chapter 8. First looking at the first four four chapters, the first four verses, uh, where we see the power of God the Father Here we see that the church grows more widely and rapidly because God the Father uses systematic attempts to stamp out the church to actually spread the church. There's a real chain reaction in these verses. If you take a look there, uh, the first thing that happens is that Stephen's death leads to a great persecution. So the the chapter starts uh, where we ended last week uh, with Saul approving of Stephen's death. If you missed last week, Stephen was a deacon in the early church and he's just been stoned to death. This guy, Saul, approves of that. And in the midst, as in response to Stephen's death, we're told there in verse 1, on that day, a great persecution broke out. It's like Stephen's death triggers this horrible persecution, this literally mega persecution. That's what the word great means, mega persecution. It's a big deal, and we're told that it breaks out, so which gives the sense that even though we've seen uh, tensions and conflict escalating in the previous chapters, still this seemed like a really violent eruption in Jerusalem. You see there in verse two, uh, verse 2 that there were some people who were really sad about Stephen's death. Uh, this group of godly or God-fearing men, They were experiencing, we're told, deep grief, mega grief in the midst of this mega persecution. You see the contrast. And meanwhile, Paul's intent on destroying the church, we're told. This is a brutal and ferocious attack on the church. It's systematic. You see there, Paul's going from house to house trying to flush out any Christian who might be in hiding. I don't know if you've seen movies about Nazi Germany. That's what this feels like, doesn't it? Banging on doors. Any Christians in there? Flush them out. When you get them out, drag them off to prison. That's what they did. To make sure they couldn't spread any of their dangerous and toxic ideas. But Stephen's death leads to this great persecution of God's people. And a second, in the second half of verse 1, you see that this great persecution leads to the scattering of ordinary Christians. 
Right? Luke says all the Christians except the apostles, right? not the official leadership, all the Christians except the apostles were scattered from Jerusalem. Right? All these everyday, average, ordinary Christians, right? they're scattering from Jerusalem into the surrounding areas of Judea and Samaria, which maybe leads us to ask the question, or at least to begin to ask, maybe this persecution's not an accident. Maybe God isn't caught by surprise by this persecution. If you've got a Bible, you can flick back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and remember that Jesus commanded his disciples to bear witness to him, not just in Jerusalem, but where? In Judea and Samaria. The very places where his people are currently being scattered because of this great persecution. But maybe God planned this persecution. But why would he do that? Well, it's because of verse 4. Because of this scattering of Christians, the gospel was scattered. And the church spread more widely and rapidly. If you look there in verse 4, we're told that those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. This isn't a kind of systematic, strategic, evangelistic campaign with months of planning. It's just everyday Christians fleeing for their lives, sharing the good news of Jesus wherever they go. And I say sharing the good news of Jesus, even though it's translated there as preach the word, but I reckon when we hear preach the word, you might think of what I'm doing. And so you think, oh, these everyday Christians, they're setting up pulpits wherever they go and preaching the word. No, no, no. It's just, it's just the word for evangelism. They're just gospeling, good newsing, sharing the good news about what Jesus has done. That's what they're doing. So you remember last week in Acts chapter 7, Stephen said, God is not in a box. God is on the move. God is living and active in all the world even where you might least expect, ultimately to save a people for himself from every nation. That's what God's business is. And here in Acts chapter 8, we see that that's exactly what God is doing through Stephen's death. This chain reaction from Stephen's death is driving God's people out of Jerusalem to save a people from all the nations. What do we learn from this? I think we learn that God sometimes plans a horrible evil, like Stephen's death, because he knows that he's going to bring a powerful good out of it. But God sometimes brings a horrible evil, pain, suffering, because he knows that he's going to bring a powerful good from it. Now, some, we, we might hear that initially and go, oh, I struggle with that. How can a good and loving God allow something as horrible as Stephen stoning? Or how could he plan it even? But really, this is right at the heart of of the gospel, what we believe as Christians, isn't it? Because Christ's death on the cross was a horrible evil, the the most horrific thing that's happened in history, the, the crucifixion of the Son of God. God the Father took no delight or pleasure in the unjust suffering of his son on the cross. And yet, if you read Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10, you see that it was the Lord's will to crush him, to cause him to suffer. Why was that? 
Because in eternity, God the Father and the Son agreed together that out of this horrible evil of the death of the Son would come the powerful good of salvation to the nations, of people being forgiven of their sins and restored in their relationship with God, welcomed into his family as his children. This is a bit of a mind bend, right? But I think when we think about God, uh, we've got to think about God as having a zoomed-in camera lens and a panoramic camera lens that takes in all of history at once. In the zoomed-in lens, God the Father says, I hate the death of my son on the cross. It's a horrible evil. Uh, But through the kind of panoramic lens of all of history, God the Father, the Son and the Spirit say, that's our will. Because we know that we're going to bring a powerful good out of that. Salvation to the nations. That's what we see here in Acts chapter 8. Stephen's stoning to death is a horrible evil. And yet God plans it, it seems, to get his people on the move out of Jerusalem. To bring the powerful good of the gospel spreading to people of all nations. And I think this is sometimes how God works in our own lives. Sometimes God allows a a really horrible pain or suffering or hardship, even something evil, into our lives. I don't know what it is for you, chronic illness, a, a really traumatic experience, a series of broken relationships perhaps terminal condition of some kind. Uh, I think about this even with my own kind of degenerative eye condition. God allows these things, indeed plans these things at times. Why? I don't pretend to have all the answers for why God might have allowed all the different things in all of our individual lives. I don't. But what we do know is if you're a Christian, you trust in Jesus, you're a child of God who's loved by your heavenly Father, What we do know is that God has good and loving and wise reasons for that, in particular, that he's using all of that pain and evil and suffering to work for your good. Paul says that in Romans 8.28. And we know from Romans 8 that our good isn't our perfect happiness or our perfect health, but it is our perfect holiness, isn't it? To make us more and more like Jesus. And sometimes... God knows that we need to experience some pain or suffering, hardship in our lives, uh, so that the gospel would spread, as it were, more deeply and widely, not in the world out there, as we see here in Acts 8, but in our hearts. So that we would appreciate his compassion and grace and mercy to us in Christ all the more. And we would become more like Jesus. This is a big view of God doesn't say good things come from God and bad things come from Satan. No, no, no. Our God rules over all. There's no surprises for him, no accidents for him. And he's working all things for your good if you're his child, to make you more like Jesus, his son. So this is God the Father at work in all his power, using these systematic attempts to stamp out the church, to spread the church. And then in verses 5 to 8, we see the power of God the Son. As the church spreads, I want to show you, but because Philip's heart has been transformed by the good news of Christ, the good news of Christ, God's Son. 
Uh, to really understand the weight of verses 5 to 8, uh, we have to get just how much the Jewish people hated the Samaritans. Right? This hostility goes back about a thousand years. The northern kingdom of Israel, where Samaria was the capital, was conquered by the Assyrians. They deported most of the Jewish people there. Some remained. Then they repopulated the area uh, with Assyrians. Uh, the Jewish people remaining uh, intermarried with the Assyrians. And, well, they, they maybe went a bit off the rails when it comes to their faith. Uh, they built a, a new temple up there on Mount Gerizim. Uh, they rejected most of the Old Testament scriptures, except for the first five books. And so for the people down south in Judah, right, where the capital was Jerusalem, where, where Philip was hanging out, those people typically considered the Samaritans to, to be kind of spiritual mongrels, not, not purebred Israelites like them down in Jerusalem. So it's actually pretty amazing when in Acts chapter 8, verse 5, we read that Philip went down to a city in Samaria. Now, if you're wondering about down, I've just said it's the northern kingdom. It's, it, I, I called Adam Humphreys during the week and was like, why is it saying down? Maybe you haven't thought about this, but why is it saying down when I've just said the northern kingdom's up north, you know, up? Uh, but, you know, it's because he's gone downhill. There you go, downhill from Jerusalem, because Jerusalem's on a hill. So anyway, uh, Philip went down to a city in Samaria uh, and proclaimed the Messiah there. But how is it that Philip has this willingness to go and share the gospel where with this people group who are absolutely despised by all his family and friends? It's because of Jesus. It's because the good news about Jesus has actually changed him. It's transformed his heart. Now, in simple terms, we've talked about, I've talked about this before. You could think about it. Uh, on the one hand, as Philip understanding that Christ really did have to die for him on the cross. He was so sinful and broken and messed up that there was no way he could just kind of clean himself up a bit by his own goodness, his own service, his own sacrifices. Jesus had to die for him. That breeds a real humility in someone. I think that's what's happened for Philip. He no longer looks down his nose at the Samaritans as if he's better than them. He's happy to go and share the gospel with them. They need Jesus just as much as he does. But humility by itself isn't enough, is it? If all your family and friends think these guys are kind of wackos who we should avoid... Right, to, 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 be, yeah, to do and go and share the gospel with those kind of people, you have to have real boldness and confidence in who you are. And Philip had that as well because he didn't just believe that Christ had to die for him, but he, that Christ was willing to die for him. Remember the glorious Son of God that Stephen saw at the end of Acts chapter 7. But Philip knew that that, that, that glorious Son of God, he, he, he loved him. Philip knew that. He knew that the, that the glorious Son of God approved of him and delighted in him and was willing to, willing to give his life for him on the cross despite all his mess. Right, that produces a real boldness, doesn't it? When you, know, when you know that you're loved by the one who has all authority, well, what do you care if your family and friends think you're a bit nuts for going to talk to some people about Jesus? Well, you don't care about that as much. That's what's happened for Philip. So in chapter 8, verse 5, he goes down to this city in Samaria and he boldly shares the gospel with them. He shares the powerful good news of Jesus in words. 
He proclaims the Messiah to them. And that Jesus is God's chosen and promised king. Are the one who's going to establish his kingdom. He proclaims this news in words. He doesn't, you notice, he doesn't proclaim a list of religious rules or rituals or a, a new worldview or way of life. He certainly doesn't proclaim himself. But he knows that he's not going to save people. He proclaims Jesus, the Messiah. He proclaims the good news of Jesus in words. But then he also puts on display the, the good news of the gospel in his deeds. If you look there in verse 6, you'll see that the people hear Philip's words and they see his deeds. And the result is that they really pay attention to his words. And that's not surprising because in verse 7 you see that Philip's deeds are pretty spectacular. Miraculous deeds, signs and wonders are bringing spiritual liberation to, to people who've been captive to evil spiritual forces. But you might have questions about that. Don't have time to, but I'd love to, to talk more about that. And then Philip's deeds also bring physical restoration to many who are lame and paralysed. This is incredible. I think like, I understand the miraculous nature of Philip's deeds can raise a bunch of questions. Uh, but in simple terms, uh, it does show us that there's something really powerful uh, of putting on display the good news of Jesus in both our words and deeds. This is something for us to, to keep thinking about as a church. It's our community life that's been transformed by the gospel, uh, that is attractive and compelling and gives people a taste of something different. It's that deed life uh, that helps people to pay attention to our words, the good news about Jesus. We've got to put on display the good news of Jesus in both our words and our deeds. And who knows, more and more people might be experiencing what happens in verse 8. The whole city here is filled with joy. Rejoicing because of the power of Christ, God's Son. And then in verses 9 to 25, we see the power of God the Spirit. Of the Spirit, you, you'll see as we unpack this, the Spirit that Simon the sorcerer desperately wants, even though he's not willing to submit to the power of Christ, God's King. And so if you look at verses 9 to 11 there, you'll see that Simon the sorcerer appears to be a man who's always really loved having power and control and influence over other people. Right? That just floats his boat. You see in verse 9 that this is a situation that's been going on in this region for some time. Simon's able to manipulate those evil spiritual forces that we've just heard about. And he's able to do it in incredible ways, in ways that amaze the people, in ways that they just can't explain. Uh, so Simon, we're told, boasted uh, that he was someone great. Again, it's that word mega, right? Simon considered himself to be some sort of megastar in this region. I don't know if you've seen uh, Anchorman with Ron Burgundy, but you can just sort of imagine Simon saying, look, I don't quite know how to put this, but, well, I'm kind of a big deal around here, you know? Like, that, that's the vibe you get with Simon, isn't it? And in verse 10, it's only reinforced, if you look at verse 10, that people give him constant attention and they've come up with this pretty fair title for him. But this man is rightly called the great power of God. But verse 11, Simon has a massive 
following. He's got this incredible power. But, but if you look at verse 12, a new power comes to town. Philip arrives and the people are, experience a power that's even greater than Simon's power, the power of Jesus. Now, verse 12 is kind of an expansion on verse 5 in a sense. It kind of gives us a bit more detail on what Philip proclaimed in this area. Saying he proclaimed the good news of God's kingdom, uh, which centered on the good news of the name of Jesus Christ. That's interesting, isn't it? Like, uh, if you've thought about how Christ's name is good news, either the name Jesus it means the one who comes to save sinners. That's good news, isn't it? Not the one who comes to save people who've got their life together or who are good enough, but the one who comes to save sinners. If you know you're not perfect, Jesus came for you. That's good news. And he's Christ, right? God's chosen king. We, we heard about that before. The one who comes to establish God's kingdom. A kingdom that brings spiritual liberation. We just saw that. And physical restoration ultimately to the entire world. Right? This is good news in the name of Jesus. And the people of this area heard Philip speak about this good news in the name of Jesus. They believed his message. And they were baptised in water. Right? First, because it was an outward physical sign of the inward cleansing that they'd experienced from their sins. And secondly, because you'll notice that they were baptised in the name of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to name someone? Some people here have recently had a baby. What does it mean for parents to name their kids? It means that this kid belongs to us. They're a part of our family. To be baptised in the name of Jesus says, I not only belong to Jesus, I also belong to Jesus' family, to his people. Now, these people understood that that's what needed to happen here. And in verse 13, where we see that Simon also seemingly believes, is baptised, and at the end of verse 13, you see that he followed Philip around everywhere, astonished at all his signs and wonders. And it's not quite there in the NIV, but that word astonished, it's the same as the word amazed back in verse 9. And so we're supposed to think, ah, oh, the guy who used to amaze everyone else with his power is now amazed at Philip's power. And as someone who'd always loved power, craved power, longed for control and influence over the people of this region, uh, Simon wants this power that Philip has. He wants to get his hands on it. And that desire is only further fanned into flame in verses 14 to 17. The apostles, they come down from Jerusalem uh, they pray for these new believers in Samaria uh, so that they might receive the Spirit, right? That they needed to be baptised in the Spirit because so far they'd only been baptised in water. Two signs of belonging to Jesus and his people. And Simon looks at the apostles being able to pray for these new believers and give, as it were, the power of the Spirit. And Simon says, I want that ability. I don't want to just receive the power of the Spirit myself. I want to be able to pass on the power of the Spirit through some sort of magic hands thing. Right? That's what Simon wants. You know, incidentally, what's with the apostles coming down to lay hands to, for these people to receive the Spirit? It's a bit strange. You know, we've got to be clear that this isn't the norm of the Christian life. Like when someone becomes a Christian here at DPC, I don't say, hey, let's make an appointment Come over to my house so I can lay hands on you and you can receive the Spirit. That's not how we do it. 
The norm of the Christian life is that people believe in Jesus and Jesus gives his spirit. It's his spirit to give. That's what happened in Acts chapter 2. Jesus baptised his people with his spirit. He didn't need a whole bunch of people to lay hands on them. So what's this incident about? It's about the fact that the apostles haven't got the memo yet. The gospel's moved on. They're stuck in Jerusalem. This, This incident is not about the special authority of the apostles as much as it's about getting them up to speed. So that they kind of go, oh, that's right, light bulb moment. Jesus said we're supposed to share the gospel with these Samaritans. What do you know? Philip's done it and they've believed in Jesus. Now, that's what it's about. Anyway, in verses 18 and 19, you'll see there that Simon wants desperately this ability to give the Spirit. So he actually offers to buy it off the apostles. It's worth thinking, right? Even though Simon supposedly believed, to put yourself in the the shoes of the people there, he's professed faith in Jesus, he's publicly been baptised in Jesus' name, and yet it's very clear that there's something wrong in his heart. It seems that he has an insatiable desire for power rather than for Jesus. And so in verses 20 to 23, Peter rebukes him. First, you'll see there in verse 20, he says, may your money perish with you. Take your money to the grave. You can't buy the Holy Spirit, Peter's saying. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is God himself. You don't just buy him off the shelf. The Holy Spirit freely gives himself to whoever he knows believes in Jesus. But how dare you presume to buy the Holy Spirit, Peter's saying. And verse 21, I'm convinced that you don't believe in Jesus. He's pretty strong. You've got no part or share in our ministry. Peter now sees Simon as he really is. In fact, in verse 22, you see there, he says, Simon, you've got to start over with Jesus. He essentially says, repent and believe. Repent. Turn away from your wicked desire for power and control over other people. It's even leading you to think you've got power over God. You can just buy the Holy Spirit. That's a dangerous place to be. You've got to repent of that and you've got to believe. You've got to turn to Jesus and pray to him as your Lord, asking that he might forgive you for this wickedness. As it stands, Peter says, verse 23, your heart remains captive to sin. Sin's still got its claws in on you. You haven't experienced the freedom that comes through Christ. And I think verse 24 makes it even clearer that that Simon's not a Christian. Notice his response when he's challenged. Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. What's he concerned about? He's not concerned about how his sin might have hurt or grieved the Lord. He's concerned about how the Lord might hurt him because of his sin. That's a big difference. Someone whose heart has been transformed to love Jesus, first or at least somewhere in there, they've got a concern, like David in Psalm 51, against you and you alone, Lord, have I sinned. You don't see any of that grief in Simon. Simon wants what Jesus offers him, the power of the Spirit, but he doesn't really want Jesus. 
So even on the, on the outside, he looks like he's a Christian, believes, he's been baptised. The reality is his heart is captivated by power, not Jesus. And I think we've got to at least take some moments to search our own hearts on this. I'm not suggesting that we're all like Simon and none of us love Jesus and we all just love it. I'm not suggesting that. But we can slip into thinking that, well, we're interested in Jesus for his stuff, but not really interested in Jesus. And you might be someone who really is desperate for approval. But instead of humbly receiving the approval you long for through trusting in Jesus, you try to buy approval from God or others through your own works and performance and sacrifice and service. You want approval. You know Jesus offers it but you don't want to receive it from him. Or freedom. We do this with freedom, don't we? Instead of humbly receiving the freedom that we long for through through trusting in Jesus alone, we think, I'm going to buy my freedom, work really hard, going to earn it. As if somehow the, the price Jesus paid on the cross wasn't enough to free us. You can do that with many things that Jesus offers. We've got to search our hearts. Are we really wanting Jesus or just the stuff that Jesus offers us? So in verses 1 to 25, we've seen the church growing. I hope you've seen the church growing as God makes it grow. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit at work. What role do we play? Well, we've already seen Philip playing his role, and I think he comes into the spotlight even more in verses 26 to 40, where we see the power of faithful gospel witnesses. Uh, In Acts chapter 21, verses 8 and 9, we learn a couple of things about Philip. Acts 21, verses 8 and 9. Uh, The first thing that we learn is that Philip is known as Philip the Evangelist. So he's something who, someone who was known to be really good at talking to people about Jesus. So as we work through these verses, I want to draw out some principles that might help us to think about how we go about sharing our own faith. Take a look in verse 26. You'll see that Philip's willing to go down a road that God tells him to, even though God doesn't tell him why. An angel of the Lord says to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road, uh, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. He must have had questions. He must have wondered why. Just been up in Samaria, you know. But he just goes obediently, following God's call. And then in verses 27 and 28, we see that Philip's really open to sharing the good news about Jesus with someone who is very different to him, even though he's curious. Actually, this guy is an Ethiopian, right? He's not Jewish. He's a eunuch, uh, which, if you don't know, means he's been castrated, which oh, makes my eyes water, but he's been castrated to serve in the, in the royal court. Uh, whereas Philip, in Acts 21, we learn that Philip is a family man. He's got four daughters. Acts 21, verse 9. Right, they're very different. Uh, the Ethiopian's a government official responsible for all the finances of the Queen of Ethiopia, a, a very powerful position. Who's Philip? He's a member of a persecuted minority, fleeing for his life. The Ethiopian sitting up in his royal chariot, no doubt very impressive. Philip, as far as we know, is simply walking on foot. 
You see the contrast, they are very, very different. And yet, Philip's willing to share the gospel with him. In part because he can see that this guy has questions. He's seeking, he's, he's searching for answers. You see in the second half of verse 27, he's gone up to Jerusalem to worship. Verse 28, he's reading from the prophet Isaiah. So verse 29, at the, at the command of the Spirit of God, Philip draws near to the Ethiopian. He stays there near his chariot. Now, I don't really quite understand, like, was the chariot moving? Was Philip running alongside? I, I, we're not giving a lot of those details. But what I do want us to see is that often this is the first step, isn't it, of sharing with someone else about Jesus. It's hard to do it from the other side of the street or the office or the cafe, right? You've got to get near to them. You've got to draw near to them. And then in verse 30, we see that once Philip draws near, he listens and asks a question. He hears the man reading from the prophet Isaiah, and he says, do you understand what you're reading? Those are good tips from Philip the evangelist. You, You listen to someone. Listen to their objections, their questions, their anger, their frustrations, their hopes, their dreams. Draw near to someone and really listen to them. As a talker, I sometimes struggle with that. I've got to listen more. And then you ask a question. Preferably a question like Philip's question, which enabled him to say something about Jesus. That's a good question. I mean, asking them, hey, you know, I don't know, what are you ordering for lunch? That's That's an okay question but ask a question that enables you to say something about Jesus. I don't know what it would look like. It might be, uh, I like to tell a story about Jesus. So it might be saying, I hear you talking about all your deep anger and frustration at all the religious hypocrisy in the world. Maybe the hypocrisy that you've experienced personally. Well, can I tell you a story about a time when Jesus was way more angry with religious hypocrites than you would ever be? Tell them a story about Jesus. Or I hear you saying that that you're not sure that you could be a Christian because Christians are all prudes uh, and to be a Christian would suck all the joy and fun and pleasure out of your life. Let me tell you a story, or can I tell you a story about a time when Jesus was at a wedding and they drank so much wine that they'd run out. They only had water left, so Jesus turned the water into wine. What do you make of that? Listen And ask a question that enables you to say something about Jesus. In particular, verses 31 to 35, we see that Philip explains the good news about Jesus to this Ethiopian eunuch in a way that starts right where he's at. Now, I know it's a lot easier for him. Not many people in the cafe, or you walk up to them, oh, you're reading Isaiah 53, how convenient. You know, like that, that doesn't happen very often, does it, right? But the principle's still good, isn't it? Start where someone's at and explain the good news about Jesus. That's what Philip does. And we don't know exactly what he said, but the, the, we, we do know that the Ethiopian must have believed. Well, when the Ethiopian says, hey, there's some water, uh, what can stand in the way of me being baptised? Philip seemingly agrees. Well, nothing can stand in your way. Let's do it. Let's get it done. But Philip must have been convinced that the Ethiopian had believed. 
Right, which is why like, some people tried to clarify that the Ethiopians believed. If you're curious, you might see that there's a little footnote there uh, with verse 37, which I think is just clarifying that the Ethiopian had definitely believed. I don't think we need that, right? And it probably wasn't in the original copies of Luke's Acts. But yeah, it's been put there because someone wanted to make it really, really, really clear that the Ethiopian had believed in Jesus. So in verses 39 and 40, Philip's taken away again by the power of the Spirit. But you'll notice that just like the city in Samaria, what fills the Ethiopian's heart? Joy. His heart is filled with joy. So who or what grows the church? I think Acts chapter 8, along with the big sweep of the teaching of the Bible, makes it abundantly clear that in the end, it's God who grows the church. After all, the church isn't just some natural organisation. It's a supernatural thing, isn't it? People are dead in their sins and they need to be raised from the dead spiritually and that's something that only God can do. In the end, it's God who grows the church. We see that in Acts chapter 8. God the Father, the Son and the Spirit grow the church and our part is to seek to be faithful gospel witnesses like Philip, with hearts transformed by the gospel. Now let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this, your word. Uh, we thank you, Father, Son and Spirit, that you are at work uh, in your great power uh, building your church. And we pray that you might uh, continue to do that, bringing growth in both number and uh, health and maturity uh, in our own church here at DPC. And we pray, Father, that we might play our small part in it uh, by seeking to be faithful gospel witnesses like Philip with hearts that have been transformed by the good news of Jesus, having the humility and boldness that we need to share and point people to him. Help us, Father, to draw near to people, uh, to be open to the leading of your spirit, uh, to be good listeners, uh, to ask questions, uh, and to explain the good news of Jesus to people uh, that many might believe. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.